You are listening to the Gateway Church in Spring Lake, Michigan. To learn more, visit us at thegatewaygh.com. Awesome. Well, hey, good morning. Very loud. Um, as Pastor Ben said, I am Pastor Bobby, and aren't we blessed by having an incredible pastor? Um, it's just amazing uh, that he gets to have time to uh, just get away and refresh. It's been a really busy and hectic season, and uh, I know that he is probably really enjoying his time um, away. But hey, I am ready to dive into the Word today, um, if that's okay with you guys. So is that all right? Awesome. Very responsive. Good start. Um, most of you um, have heard the story of how I found Jesus, or maybe, I guess, how um, Jesus found me. At the ripe age of 14, um, I was arrested for breaking and entering into a house uh, that obviously wasn't mine, and, and I was young, and I might have not been uh, stupid, but I was definitely careless, um, and I was fortunate that the family whose home I broke into lowered their charges from a felony to a misdemeanor. Um, I was even more lucky and fortunate that uh, whenever I went to trial, the judge lowered my sentence uh, to the lowest sentence possible, um, only getting six months of probation um, with a small fine, and I actually got no community service, and it was an, an incredible blessing. Um, but most of all, uh, like I said, that stupid mistake helped me to realize how truly hopeless I was um, I thought that I was a good kid, and I thought that my good actions would get me into heaven. And, um, and the truth for me was realized when um, I was staring down possible time in juvie. And it was after this ordeal that I realized my need for a savior, and, um, and I'm so glad that Jesus would reach out to me in such a, a crazy and unconventional way to show me how truly empty my life was before I knew him. But let's go back to this whole idea of getting arrested. You know, that whole process of going to court. Um, yeah, I, I don't recommend that. And so if you're thinking about serving some hard time anytime soon, uh, I would suggest you heavily reconsider. Um, I can recommend a few really terrible hotels for you to stay at that might give you a similar uh, feel of what that would be like. So, but the court process, it's really scary. You go into this fluorescent lit courthouse. I mean, even the lighting is harsh there. And as a teenager, I wanted to look my best, and so I wore dress clothes to the court that day. And, um, but, but like, when does a teenager wear dress clothes? It's like twice a year, right? And so I could feel this collared shirt like cutting off my breathing, and the cuffs of the shirt made me feel like I was already, um, like I was already in chains. Even my own clothes were out to get me that day. But today isn't about my trial. Um, today we will be talking about when the Apostle Paul first stood trial for his faith. And for those of you who uh, might be here for the first or the second time, uh, we've been doing a study this entire year uh, since January through the book of Acts. Um, Acts is a story about the beginning of the church and how uh, the early church fathers lived with purpose. Uh, we've created four mini-series kind of centered around this. Um, at the start of Acts, the church began to realize that they were created with purpose. And we as a church today, we have purpose in this life that's not just centered around nine to five, um, but we are offered the opportunity to make a true difference in this world. 
And our second mini-series was about finding the purpose, and uh, the church had purpose, but, but what did it look like, especially after Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven? And sometimes we even have to ask what our purpose is today. What does it look like for us to bring heaven to earth in 2018? What does it look like for us to be the church in our neighborhoods, in our schools, at our jobs, or even with, with just being a person living on this earth? In early summer, we talked about living out that purpose. It's good to know that we have purpose, but we have to do something about it. Sorry. We are called the literal hands and feet of Jesus. So we have to live out what we know to be true. And we saw the example of the early church growing as it spread the message of Jesus across the world. But now, and if you guys have been tracking with us, you know that we are quickly approaching the end of our series um, as we learn about the cost of purpose. Over the past several chapters in the past few months, we've been talking about a man named Paul. Um, he was a zealot Jewish leader uh, who went from killing Christians to being one of them. And after Paul met Jesus, the majority of the story of the early church in Acts um, has shifted to being a story actually about Paul. And I'm kind of glad that we have uh, this early documentation of Paul's life um, because two-thirds of the New Testament is authored by him, so he's kind of like a really big deal. Um, and last week, Pastor Ben shared um, that Paul was about to be arrested in Jerusalem for his faith. Um, what he didn't share with you is that Paul would spend the rest of his life as a prisoner. Today, we will look at Paul's first trial hearing under Jewish authorities and under the region's local governor. There is a cost to having purpose. But we, can, um, but we can see today that even though there is a cost to living on purpose, that the price is worth paying. Today we will look at the audience, the adversaries, the answer, and the advocate that we have when we are on trial. Um, so the first thing we're going to look at is Paul's audience. Um, one of the major themes in the book of Luke and Acts is that the gospel is for everyone. And several months ago, you might remember, um, I talked about this and I actually used Coca-Cola as an illustration. Just like we need to share a Coke, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to get his readers to really get that the gospel is meant to be shared with everyone. And we'll see here that they, they didn't receive that too well in this story. Um, last week, Pastor Ben mentioned that Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, which is the hub of Judaism. Um, when Paul got to the city, a mob quickly formed uh, because they thought that he was going to defile the temple uh, by bringing in men that weren't Jews. Um, to do so, uh, just so you guys would know, it would be an offense to the highest degree. It would be like if you and a group of friends decide to go to a restaurant and one of your friends decides to bring food from a different restaurant. Have you ever like, been with someone who's been bold enough to do that? I have. My wife has some dieting restrictions, and we have had to be those people. But like, who does that? So this mob forms, and Paul starts his defense, and he shares a bit about his past and why he's been away from Jerusalem for so long. And so we'll pick up our story there, and this is in Acts 22, and in verses 17 through 22. It says, when I, and this is Paul talking, he says, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me, quick, quick. 
He said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. And this was several years ago uh, for us. This was probably between uh, chapters 11 and 12 in Acts, and we're now all the way in chapter 22. So he's giving us some brief history. And he said, Lord, I reply, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, and this is important, go and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. So how would you like if someone said that about you? Rid the earth of Bobby. He is not fit to live. And I told Matt, don't say amen here. Don't say amen. Thank you, thank you. Uh, So Paul starts by stating who his audience is, that God sent him to the Gentiles. And for those who don't know, a Gentile is essentially anyone who isn't Jewish. Uh, There was a huge divide between uh, the Jewish people and the Gentiles. The Jewish people have spent years setting themselves apart. Uh, There have been revolts and wars just the past couple of uh, hundreds of years uh, before this story that have helped them maintain their way of life. Now it appears that Paul is trying to just tear this whole thing apart by welcoming in outsiders. This is a huge, a huge, a huge uh, cultural shift, a God for both Jews and Gentiles. So maybe, maybe we can understand a little bit why they would react as they did. Jesus is for all people of all nationalities. And this isn't just about sharing Jesus with the world. This is about showing the world that we're all created by the same God and deserve the same opportunities to follow him. It's easy for us to nod our head um, and to agree when we live in West Michigan. Um, I grew up in a small town in Ohio that was very similar to Grand Haven and Spring Lake area. Um, It was 97% white. Um, For the majority of my childhood, I grew up in middle class. Um, It was easy for me to say growing up that I wanted equal opportunity for everyone because that belief could never really be tested. There was no other nationality um, or background around me. So when I ended up attending a predominantly white college, I I still end up making several friends uh, from other parts of the U.S. and around the world who were of color. Um, They showed me very quickly how secretly prejudiced uh, some of the students at our school were. And I mean... Like, it wasn't intentional. Uh, We were all in Bible college. We're training to be future ministers and missionaries and and pastors. Um, But a lot of us grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods and and went to predominantly white churches, and so it it made sense. And they specifically, um, they showed me really quickly how I'm prejudiced. Not that they thought I was blatantly racist or anything, but just that I didn't understand what life was like for them because I wasn't of color and I wasn't a foreigner in white America. And until that point, I didn't try to understand because I thought I knew. I just assumed we faced everything, every obstacle the same way. You know, it's easy for us to read this passage and wonder how Paul can mention Gentiles and the culture shifts. Immediately, the people say that they should rid the earth of his existence. That's intense. And it's easy for us to say that all people deserve equal opportunities until they're saying they're being brutalized by police. 
until they peacefully protest for something that we're passionate about, something maybe we or others have fought for. It's easy for us to support others until they're trapped in a country fearing for their lives and they're asking us to let them into our communities, into our schools. The Jewish people didn't understand how God would now welcome in all these people. People who had temple prostitutes, people who recently would have, have, have rid the earth of them if they had the chance. These ideas, they didn't fit with who the Jewish people made God to be in their minds. Let's make sure that we don't do the same thing with how we view our brothers and sisters in Christ. Before I'm an American, before I'm a husband, before I'm a pastor, I'm a child of God. So are you. So Paul doesn't just share the gospel with Gentiles. He, he also shares the gospel, uh, gospel with Gentiles who are in places of authority and influence. After this mob breaks out, Paul is arrested, and eventually in chapter 24, he gets sent to a governor named Felix. Until this point, Paul's ministry has been with mo uh, mostly working class people. Um, he's, he's gone out into the streets and marketplaces, and he's ministered to people very similar to you and me. But now for the rest of the book, we'll see Paul ministering to people of power, um, these, the highest ranking officials of Rome. Um, like I said, I got arrested whenever I was around 16, and, um, or probably 14, and, and my family actually went through bankruptcy when I was about 16. And again, like getting arrested, this is something I, I don't recommend. Don't go through bankruptcy if you don't have to. Um, but because of the financial position my family was in through most of my teenagers, uh, my teenagers I actually grew up with a, with a slight bias against people who had money. In my head, everyone who was rich um, had a nice house or a nice car. They were probably selfish or greedy in some way in my eyes. Um, they must have gotten rich off of taking advantage of someone or, or, um, or something. Uh, that was just what was in my mind. And so what does God do? He ends up sending me to the third wealthiest community in the United States for my first ministry position. Um, Greenwich, Connecticut, if you don't know, it's, it's spelled Greenwich, but that, like they're so... They're so uptight that they can't even say Greenwich. It's Greenwich. Greenwich, Connecticut is, is immaculate. Um, and my wife is actually there this week. She's working and she's visiting some family and uh, getting to see they're doing a church um, opening as well. And, and I miss her already. And, and for her, it's home. And so I won't bash it too much. Um, but Greenwich is a suburb of New York City. And uh, the town is, it's just insane. Everyone there drives the most beautiful cars I've ever seen. Um, like, for example, they have a Bentley dealership, and they have a Ferrari dealership. Um, if you've heard of it, they have a McLaren dealership. Um, I've seen people driving Maybachs, if you know what that is. And uh, they even have a Rolls-Royce dealership. So just that will frame your mind. Um, I think they have two Bentley dealerships, um, actually. But many of the houses, uh, they can't even be seen from the road, and they're, they're these huge fences that are blocking you from seeing their yards. And when my Nana found out uh, that I was moving uh, to Greenwich, she quickly said, Regis Philbin lives there. She was so excited. <laughs> yeah, so does Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph Lauren and, and Ron Howard and Diana Ross. So Greenwich just isn't money. Greenwich is Regis kind of money. So just get that in your mind. It was so weird living and working and administering to people who didn't need anything. They had everything they would ever need. 
And some probably had more than them or their families would ever need. But after being there for a couple months, I realized that people who don't need anything, they still need Jesus, right? People who don't need anything in this life, they still need Jesus. And without Jesus, nothing else matters. And, and it took longer, um, longer time than I want to admit for me to realize that. And, and God changed my heart and re- he reminded me, like the readers are being reminded of here, that God wants to reach the loftiest as well as the lowest people of society. And Paul gets that. And so here he goes, he gets taken to Felix, this Roman governor, and he sees this incredible opportunity to share the gospel with someone who has real influence in his society. Paul didn't care what part of society he was from. He healed beggars and he'll share uh, the gospel with governors. He treated everyone the same regardless of their bank account regardless of their ethnicity or nationality, regardless of their place in society. So I want to do an exercise this morning. Is that okay? Is that okay? All right, got some nods, got some blank stares. Pretty, pretty normal, so it's, it's still pretty early. So uh, let's fill in the blank. The gospel is for everyone except your turn. Ooh, you got me. You got me. I'm done. All right, let's pray. Um, no, but who popped into your head? Maybe it was your boss. Maybe it was your abusive father. Was it a friend who introduced you to drugs when you were a kid? Is it a student that everyone ignores at school because they think they're weird? Is it the neighbor that mows their lawn in the middle of the night? Yeah, you all know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Preaching to the right crowd this morning. So the gospel is for me and it's for you and it's for our enemies too. It's for celebrities and it's for politicians and it's for immigrants and orphanages. Everyone deserves the chance to accept Jesus. So when we face trials and when we're on trial for our faith, we need to think of our audience. Who are we trying to reach? Who's, who's watching us? They are why we need to press on. If we don't press on, then they may never know the hope that comes in Jesus' name. We need to be aware of our audience. But we also need to be aware of our adversaries. Every trial we face, every trial, is because of opposition. And sometimes opposition, it will come in the form of a bad circumstance. And sometimes opposition, it has a face and a name. Here we see that Paul's adversaries are Jewish leaders, members of a council called the Sanhedrin. Um, The Sanhedrin were the leaders in Israel, and so they could throw people in prison. And let me tell you, they did not like Paul at all. So let's take another look um, at what happens in this story, and we'll start in Acts 22.30 and read through Acts 23, uh, verse 5. And so the commander, and this is a Roman commander, not Uh, someone from the uh, Sanhedrin. Uh, So the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. 
Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. It's pretty great with words, right? So, so those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult the high priest? Paul replied, brothers, and this is important, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So Paul, he doesn't even get two words in before he gets hit in the face. And so I think he could tell pretty quickly that he wasn't going to get uh, probably a fair trial by them. Uh, he was already guilty in their eyes. And, and how many times does that happen where when, when someone has made up their mind about, uh, about us before they even know us? Or maybe even worse, when, when we've done that to someone else. Our adversaries will attack us. Circumstances will come and they'll hit us. Or maybe even the enemy will come and tempt and attack us. But look how Paul responds. I mean, first he calls the high priest a, a whitewashed wall, which is essentially his way of calling him a hypocrite. Um, but as soon as he realizes that Ananias was in a place of honor, that he was the high priest, Paul changes his tune. I mean, Paul ends up apologizing. Think of this. Paul ends up apologizing to the guy who slaps him in the face, who orders to slap him in the face. And I have trouble forgiving like a drive through worker when they forget my sauce. And, and Paul, yeah, again, I'm preaching to the right crowd. Good to know. But, but Paul is apologizing after getting hit in the face. Okay, I see where this is going. So how do we respond when we're attacked? Do we lash out? Do we attack back? Do we, do we plot out our revenge for weeks or months or years, just, just waiting for the right opportunity to get that stupid employee back for forgetting our sauce? Yeah, we do. Um, but maybe we let bitterness sink in and we let it eat at us for years and years to come. Let's learn from Paul's example and turn the other cheek. Let's respond to even our adversaries with grace. But Paul not only had to face attacks, but he also had to face false accusations. After Paul faced the, Sanhed uh, the Sanhedrin for charges, he was sent to Felix to face trial. The Jewish leaders sent a skilled lawyer to plead their case against Paul. And we'll pick the story back up. This is in Acts 24. And here, from this lawyer um, of, the, of the charges they're placing against Paul, and uh, again, this is the lawyer speaking here. He, he says, starting in verse 5, that we have found this man to be a troublemaker. A troublemaker. Say that with me. A troublemaker. Yeah, thank you. All right. Sorry, my bad. I didn't give you a cue enough. Say it again. All right, ready, ready, ready? A troublemaker. Thank you. Yeah. So stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world, he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we're bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. The Jewish leaders attacked Paul on all fronts. They weren't just against what had happened. They were against him as a person. Their false accusations against him, they're personal, they were cultural, and they were theological. They were personal because they said he was a troublemaker. And the actual word in the Greek here, it's a lot worse than a troublemaker. It's actually the word plague. He wasn't just causing trouble. His whole existence was like a disease. What do you do with a plague or a disease? 
you eradicate it. You get rid of it. When I read this, I immediately thought of the movie Home Alone. How many people have seen Home Alone? Yeah, yeah, man. Kevin is just trying to get some cheese pizza uh, when he realizes that Buzz had eaten it all. And Buzz is rubbing it in, this, uh, in his face, and this calamity ensues, and there is milk and soda now everywhere. And the night is a disaster. Um, there's an infinite miss line here that says, you know, look what you did, you little jerk. Uh, this moment, this moment of the story. So, but before Kevin gets up, uh, sent upstairs to, uh, to his room, another one of his brothers, he looks right at him and says, he says, Kevin, you are such a disease. Yeah, you guys know. You guys know. I imagine this is how the lawyer is talking about Paul. Paul is such a disease. But their accusations didn't end there. There was also a cultural assault. They said that Paul was stirring up riots and being a disturber of the peace. Paul wasn't just an enemy of the Jewish people in their eyes, but he was an enemy of Rome. And Paul, he kind of did have that effect on people. Everywhere he went, either a revival or a riot broke out. But your adversaries, they'll make it seem like their attack on you, that, that it isn't biased, that they, they think that if they don't like you, then, then everyone shouldn't like you. And think of our political climate today. Even though Democrats and Republicans both want the best for this country, uh, they oftentimes uh, think the other wants nothing but to see the demise of the state. And we all know that isn't true. We just have different views of what's best for our country and what to do to get there. But instead of seeing that, what we'll do is we'll paint the other side as crazy or as moronic as possible. Uh, we'll cast them as being all around malignant. They're just nothing but evil. It's not just one issue we disagree with, but it's the whole system and anyone who's a part of it. And our adversaries will do the same with us, too. We aren't just a nuisance to them. We're a nuisance to everyone. Lastly, when we face trials, false accusations, they can become theological, um, especially for us as Christians. The accusation against Paul is that he is a ringleader of a sect. He isn't just a mere follower. He is the one that is leading the charge. And he is doing whatever he can in whatever way possible to mess with the long-held traditions of the Jewish people. Especially in this pluralistic um, and secular culture that we're living in today, people don't understand how Jesus can be the only way to heaven. Live this way, and trust me, people will soon notice live sacrificially, and start spreading the message of Jesus, and you'll see this same opposition. How can a God of love not allow everyone into heaven? Well, he does give everyone the opportunity to follow him. He's not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should seek repentance. But ultimately, that's the price of free will. We have a freedom to sin and, and the freedom not to follow Jesus if we don't want to. Jesus is inviting us all to follow him. He is calling us to be like Paul and to spread that message to the world. So Paul's on trial for ministering to this Gentile audience. Now he's getting to share the gospel with a wider, a wider and more influential audience. He's facing adversaries who are attacking him physically and attacking his character by laying all these false accusations against him. But now we get to hear Paul's side of the story. How many want to hear Paul's side of the story, right? You're like, man, we've heard a lot of things against Paul. Let's, like, hear some good things now. Okay. So luckily, when we face trials, uh, we get to put up a defense. We have 
an answer. Paul has two legal hearings that we're seeing here today. One is with the Sanhedrin, the, uh, the Jewish council, and the other is with the Roman governor, Felix. And when asked to address both of these situations, Paul has the same answer for each of them. Right after Paul gets slapped by the high priest, he gives him in the Sanhedrin the reason why he's there. In Acts 23, 6, Paul says, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Paul has the same answer when he stands before Felix. He says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So what does this mean? Paul is saying that he believes in a bodily resurrection. One day Jesus will return to earth and every person, both the righteous and the wicked, will rise from the dead and stand before him. And how do we know this? I think Paul is hinting at it here. It's because we already know someone who, is, uh, who has been raised from the dead. Jesus came to share um, and show us the future that those um, who put their hope in him have. That we have the promise of eternal life in him. And the fact that he is alive should give us hope through any trial. When we're facing trials, where do we look for an answer? When finances are tight, where do we turn? We try to make more money, of course, you know, right? When our kids start wandering from the faith, what do we do? We try to get them under control ourselves as much as possible. When our marriages start to collapse, what's our next step? Get a divorce. Right? No. It's because we have a hope in the resurrection. For every problem, Jesus has an answer. Sometimes when life throws us lemons, we need to look at him to make the lemonade. And I know, like, and it's tough because, you know, it's easy for me to preach this, and, and I'm probably oversimplifying things. But how often do we turn to Jesus last when we should be turning to him first? And sometimes the answer isn't, isn't right in front of us, but that's why we have the Holy Spirit, and that's why we have the Bible to be our guides. Again, I'm not saying that it will be simple, that will be easy, but we need to remember who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't revolve around our situations, but our situations, our trials, as well as our triumphs, should center around him. Or maybe you're thinking, but Pastor Bobby, I'm not facing any trials right now. And you know what? That's awesome. Like I said, you know, multiple times, I don't recommend it. Trials of any kind. So, you know, if you're not going through a trial, that's awesome. But let's remember these truths for the next time we do face a trial or the next time there is an obstacle or when we do have adversity. Or maybe some of us are here this morning and we've been avoiding trials. Paul wouldn't have been on trial if he didn't go to Jerusalem and he was told multiple times he probably shouldn't go to Jerusalem. He wouldn't have been on trial if he had recanted Jesus. He, he wouldn't have been facing opposition if he had never shared the gospel to the Gentiles at all. And sometimes the opposite is true. You know, some people avoid trials and others, they kind of look for them. There's a difference between being on trial and making yourself a victim. And Paul doesn't see himself as a victim here. 
Um, like I mentioned earlier, this is the first time Paul is called a prisoner here. Um, it's in, in chapter 23, verse 18. And, and in his letters, it's a title that he actually wears with honor. If you've read some of his letters to the early churches, some of the New Testament letters. And in Ephesians um, chapter 4, verse 1, he actually says, As a prisoner for, uh, for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And he was called to be a prisoner. How amazing is that? What trials do, uh, do you have before you right now? What are you, uh, where are you looking for answers? Let's remember we have the answer to every trial and every question. We need to remember that Jesus is our answer, and we also need to remember that he is our advocate. Jesus isn't just the answer, but he also speaks to us in our time of need. He's our answer because we can look to him in times of trial, and he is our advocate because when we look to him in those times, he responds. He is our source and our supply. In times of trial, we know that we have someone who is in our corner, and he is fighting for us. Like Pastor Ben talked about last week, it was Paul's total surrender that led him to Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to get arrested, but that doesn't mean it was easy for him when it actually happened. He was still in jail. He still didn't know why any of this was happening to him. He just knew he was supposed to go. But the night after Paul met the Sanhedrin, before he went to see Felix, Jesus spoke to him. He reminded Paul of his purpose and helped him to remember why the cost was worth paying. Listen to what Jesus says to Paul in his time of need. In Acts 23, 11, he says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul. He stood near him. And he said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I love that message. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Take heart. Stand strong. Our advocate will encourage us, even, even when circumstances seem helpless. And if we follow Jesus, we should be encouraging others in the same way. That doesn't mean sugarcoating a situation. Jesus didn't tell Paul that everything would be okay. What he told Paul is he didn't need to be afraid because he would be with him through everything. That's what I love about our church, and, and I don't know if you know this, but I, I hear all the time about how real we are. We don't sugarcoat situations. We don't just cover up difficulties with empty platitudes. But I don't hear just how real we are. I also hear um, oftentimes how encouraging we are. Uh, one thing we strive to do here in every ministry, um, I know I strive to do it um, on the worship team, is, is we try to be uplifting and encouraging. And we hear from visitors all the time that fill out surveys or, or, or who come up to us um, all the time about how positive and how welcoming we are. And let me be honest, being real and being positive, it's a really fine line to walk. I don't know if you know that, but we walk it. And so thank you guys, sincerely. Um, you're helping us live like Jesus, and I really appreciate that. So Jesus tells Paul first to take courage. Then he reminds Paul of his calling. If you've been tracking with us uh, for a while in Acts, um, you know that the main idea of Acts lies in Acts 1, verse 8. 
Well, the whole book of Acts hinges on this uh, one passage, and it's where Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the same exact thing that Jesus says here. Jesus isn't finished with Paul yet, and Paul isn't done spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus was telling Paul that he was sending him to the leader of the known world. Paul would soon face trial in front of Caesar himself. If you're going to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, why not go to the guy who's kind of in charge of it? So Jesus is encouraging Paul and letting Paul know why he's facing trial. Sometimes when we face trials, God will give us strength to persevere. Trials can be temporary. But sometimes when we face trials, God will give us strength to endure. The trial will be something we will face for the rest of our lives. But we'll have strength to endure it. Maybe for some of us that's disheartening. It would be great if Paul's story had a happy ending, but it, it doesn't. Paul spends the rest of his life in prison. After this book is finished, Paul ends up getting beheaded by the emperor Nero. But the book of Acts and the story of the church isn't about Paul. This story is about the gospel of Jesus Christ spreading across the earth. Our purpose doesn't center around our own wants, our hopes, our desires. Our purpose centers around Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his return. He's our advocate, encouraging us along the way to finish the good work. So I want to ask you this morning, what is Jesus trying to say to you today? Like I mentioned earlier, my family went through bankruptcy whenever I was a teenager during the recession. Well, I didn't tell you that it was probably um, the worst period of my life. Um, a year after I'd gotten arrested, my parents got um, a divorce like, like many do, and it was a pretty rough divorce. One parent lost their job, so I moved in with another parent. Um, then that parent lost their job, and we were in this weird place of limbo. Both parents were, were, were struggling to find work while, while battling through this, uh, through this separation, and, and because the recession had hit America so hard, as many of you know, um, 10, 12 years ago, my parents couldn't afford to live separately even though they were separated. So my parents actually lived together for about a year while being divorced. And again, this is something I do not recommend. I hope you know. Can't say it enough. So my parents are now in between jobs. They're living together while not being together. Uh, they're facing bankruptcy, and we're about to be foreclosed on. And Doug, if you want to come up and play a little bit, that would be great. I remember sitting in my room and asking God when things were going to get better. I remember doing my devotions and crying out because it was so tough at the time. Like Paul, I remember Jesus speaking to me in one of my darkest moments. And you know what he said? He said that things were going to get worse. And and I know that sounds confusing <laughs> to some of you, and, and, and so let me explain. I felt Jesus say that things would get worse, but that he would use my situation um, in two ways. 
Um, the first is that I, would, um, that I was going to face the lowest point in my life for that season. Jesus was going to walk with me through this valley so that I would know that he is faithful in any situation I would face in the future. I know now that if Jesus got me through all of that 13 years ago, that he can get me through anything, and he has. I also felt him say that he would use my testimony as an encouragement to others who have gone through similar situations. You know, I really didn't understand that at the time, and I didn't even really understand um, what Jesus meant when he said that things would get worse. And, and then my dad had his heart attack. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie, um, when my mom picked me and my sister up from school and told us that my dad had a heart attack, um, I knew this is what Jesus meant. And I actually, um, I, I knew instantly. And so when she picked us up and she told us, I was expecting for her to say that he had died. Um, I was full prepared. And, and Jesus was preparing me for another catastrophe. But luckily for me, um, my dad made it through okay. And um, he's probably going to be listening to this message this, uh, this week at some point. So, hey, Dad, uh, I love you. So, uh, <laughs> but it was one of the scariest moments of my life. But I was calm through the whole situation because I knew that Jesus was with me. And let me tell you, the, the next few months after that moment is when God really moved in my life. Like I said, I didn't understand that Jesus would use my testimony because God hadn't called me into ministry yet. That happened less than six months after this happened. I was also filled with the Holy Spirit during that time. Uh, the next few months was also filled with um, many miraculous financial blessings. Um, I got jobs that would help pay for missions trips. I'm almost to the dollar. Um, I heard God telling me to put money in an offering once and he would multiply it. And the next day, um, I got offered a job that I didn't even apply for. God was so evident during that time in my life because I needed to hear from him to make it another day. So again, let me ask you this morning, what is Jesus trying to say to you today? Maybe you've been running from him and he's pleading with you to come home. Maybe you've gone through a trial in the past and he wants you to share your story with someone who's going through something similar. Maybe you're in a trial right now and you've been crying out to him. He's not far off and he hears you. We need to remember that we, uh, when we are on trial, that we have an audience that we need to reach. There are people out there who need to hear the message of Jesus. And when we do, we have adversaries that are coming against us. But during that time, we need to remember that we have the answer. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we need to listen to him as he speaks. He is our advocate and he is cheering us on. So can we pray this morning? Out of respect for those here, can we just bow our heads and close our eyes? I just want to take a moment. Let's just ask Jesus. Let's just
just ask Jesus what he's trying to speak to each of us this morning. And maybe, maybe you feel something stir in your spirit as we're waiting here. But I want to encourage you, write it down. Let it be your theme for the week. Let it be something that you hold on to for these next seven days or maybe the next few months or maybe the next year or maybe for the rest of your life. But let's just take a moment. Let's ask Jesus what he's trying to speak to us this morning. Yes, Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been running from Jesus. Maybe he's speaking to you and he's trying to call you home. He's trying to say, come and follow me. Stop running. If that's you this morning and you want to stop running, you want to embrace the Savior, will you just raise your hand this morning? We want to pray for you. soften our hearts. Yes. I see your hand. You can put your hand down. Yes, Lord. Yes, Jesus, we just thank you. Let this be a time of surrender where we surrender our will. We surrender our way and we embrace you as Savior and Lord of our lives. Yes, I pray that for anyone here who is wanting to either come home for the first time or for the first time in a long time. I just pray that you'll meet us in this place, that you'll meet them in a special way. We thank you, Jesus, that you are not far off, that you're close. Yes, Lord. Maybe you're here and, and maybe you're facing a trial. Maybe it's a trial you've faced before. Maybe it's a trial you've never seen. Or maybe it's something that you've been battling for years. Maybe you're in this trial and, and all you see is darkness and you're looking for light. And you need to hear from Jesus. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you as well. Jesus, we thank you that even in our darkest moments there is a light. Now, you don't promise that things will always get better, but you promise that you will be with us. And we thank you that there is hope in the resurrection of the dead, that we have a hope and a future that we can look for, that there is a time when you are coming back to set things right. And we can look to that time when we live with you eternally. And we thank you and we set our hopes on that time when you come again. Lord, and I just pray for me right now. Now you're speaking to me as well, God. God, and you're saying, you know, don't live for the applause. God, let me serve and let me look to an audience of one. Let me look to you and you alone this morning. God, and I pray that, that if anyone heard from you this morning, that it would be something that would sit in their hearts through this season and the next season. And I pray that, um, 
if anyone didn't hear from you this morning, that you would speak to them through this week, that they would find a time to be alone and to not just talk to you, but to hear from you as well. God, you speak to us in times of desperation. And so I just pray that we won't stay clear of those desperate moments. God, but we'll go where you have called us to go. To all people in all places, to all audiences, regardless of what comes against us. Because you're our answer. You're our way. And we thank you. Now, Jesus, I just pray this morning as we end our time that you will be with us, uh, that you'll go before us, that you'll, um, as Pastor Ben says, be, um, you know, um, before us, behind us, and all around us. And, and just be with us today as we, you know, do our, our thing, as we watch football, as we hang out with family, as, as maybe we go to work later. I just pray that you will be in every part of all we do. And we give you all the praise and glory and honor. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Man, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. And um, you guys can stand, greet one another again, and go in the grace of God. Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Gateway Church. If you'd like to find out more about our church, such as service times, giving, and ways to get connected, visit us at thegatewaygh.com.